Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Internews Health Podcast. My name is Bea Spadaccini, and I manage the Internews Health Journalism Network. You can find out more about this network and register to become a member by visiting our website at healthjournalism.internews.org. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Adele Belletta, who is an award-winning science journalist and a vaccine safety communications advisor for the World Health Organization. Adele is also a member of the advisory working group for the South African Health Ministry Vaccine Hesitancy. Adele is also an internews pandemic health mentor, a group of in-house experts that advises our work. Today we're going to talk about the Delta variant. So Adele, let me start by asking you when and where did we first start to see this new variant called the Delta variant? Sure. Thanks very much for having me, Bear. Um, it's a great privilege to be with you here on this podcast. Okay, so the Delta variant, uh, which is also called the B16172, was first detected in India in December last year. It swept rapidly through the country and in the UK as well. And as we have seen, it has also taken hold in the United States, where a majority of the population is vaccinated. It has been wreaking havoc worldwide um, and is now in at least 100 countries, which is very alarming. It's also mm -hmm. expected to become the dominant strain globally, spreading fast in countries with both low and high vaccination coverage. But it poses the greatest threat where vaccination rates are low. The World sure. Health Organization mm -hmm. declared Delta a variant of concern in May this year when new infections in India reached more than 400,000 every day, which is an extremely high number, as you will appreciate. But what does the voice, uh, what does a variant of concern actually mean? So it's a term the WHO applies when a variant has increased transmissibility, where it causes more severe disease, or if it makes treatments, vaccines or diagnostic tools, in other words, tests, less effective. So, so what do we know about this, the Delta variant? And is it more contagious than earlier versions of the virus? Is it more severe? So there, um, scientists and researchers are still learning a lot about the Delta variant. But there are some things that have been established. And one of the most important things that has been set down is that it is the most transmissible or infectious variant so far. It is more infectious, in other words, than any other SARS-CoV-2 variant that the world has uh, experienced to date. It also mm -hmm. appears that people are transmitting the virus to others sooner than people spread the original form of the no novel coronavirus, which is the one that was first detected in Wuhan in China. Some early research from Scotland suggests that the risk of hospitalization with COVID-19 from the Delta variant is about twice the risk from the Alpha variant, with, of course, unvaccinated people at the greatest risk. So that's really worrying. Yeah. But it's not yet clear whether this increased risk of hospitalization also means more people are likely to die as a result of the infection caused by Delta. Thank you for that. And um, so it's really also challenging for journalists to keep up with the story that keeps, it's been around for a year and a half and plus. 
So what do journalists need to remember when they're reporting on variants versus strains and mutation, Adele? And why is it important for journalists to get the terminologies right? So, so Bea, I couldn't agree with you more about uh, the point that you made about journalists needing to keep up. And maybe we can look at that a bit later, but it is an essential part of this pandemic that just as fast as variants are now becoming apparent so journalists have to almost keep ahead of the variants so that they have the correct information to give to their audiences but yes uh, getting scientific words right explaining them in other words is essential for spreading accurate information and unfortunately a lot of information is being put out there um, not a lot of the time with journalists misunderstanding mm -hmm. of what terms actually mean so it's not that they are going out spreading information this information deliberately but it's with the pressures of so much information uh, we, we actually have to take the time to really understand what's going on so to your question about the differences between variants versus strains and mutations Firstly, I think the journalists need to understand that viruses undergo small changes in their structures, mm -hmm. and these are called mutations, and they mutate constantly to ensure their survival. This is also especially true of the viruses that contain RNA mm -hmm. as the genetic material, and these are, for example, coronaviruses and influenza viruses, right? But before yeah. I continue, let's backtrack a bit to understand how viruses replicate to ensure their survival. So when a virus's genetic material, in other words, it's RNA or DNA, enters a human cell, it hijacks the machinery of that human cell to replicate or make copies of itself. Remember, it wants to survive. The bloated cell, once it's full of the viruses, full of new assembled viruses, in other words, burst out of the human cell and they go on to infect other cells. Now, we all make mistakes and so too with viruses. Every now and then, an error occurs during the virus's copying process and mm -hmm. this is called a mutation. Viruses with these mutations are called variants, alpha, beta, delta, and the other variants we have come to know. So, most of the mutations don't significantly affect how the virus works, but sometimes a mutation happens in a part of the virus's RNA that causes a change in a particular building block. So what I mean is that the virus then is built differently. It is physically different and it behaves differently to its parent virus. So, for example, sometimes the mutation helps the virus to evade our immune system. So mm -hmm. where we have an immune system that is now used to this virus and can fight off this virus, you get a variant that comes along with a mutation that is able to sneak past all of these defenses and they get into our cells more easily. And mm -hmm. this has been the case with the Delta variant. And in some cases, the Delta variant has been able to sneak past um, the ability of a vaccine to prevent infection. 
because in this case, the variant is referred to as a strain where it is physically different, where its behavior changes. So then it becomes referred to as a strain. So effectively Delta can be considered a strain. Mm -hmm. so I've seen the words used interchangeably by scientists. The strain that we often refer to for um, the pandemic is that SARS-CoV-2, but now we've had mutations of those. And these variants seem to be changing their behavior. So they too are now kind of developing their own behavior, which in time will be enable them to be considered a strain. But I think journalists should at this point use the word variant with regard mm -hmm. to Delta as the WHO does until there is more research on the behavior of the variant. So let's stick to the Delta variant as a variant and not as a strain. Going back to how it impacts, how the Delta variant impacts people and um, who are infected, can you go a little bit deeper into um, the groups, the age groups or the demographic of the people that might get infected with the Delta variant? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do we know anything more? So just, you know, even anecdotally, and I'm sure that you um, yourself has, have seen that the Delta variant is definitely hitting at younger people, all right? Mm -hmm. So previously, we've seen the various variants in the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, right, that original strain, um, affected people that were in the older age group, people that had comorbidities uh, such as diabetes, uh, cancers, etc. right? But definitely more geared towards the older group. Yeah. What we're now seeing is that all age groups are affected by the Delta variant, but the youth appear to be more affected than was the case with the other variants. We are now, in other words, looking at babies to people of 80 years and older. This is very, very worrying, okay? Mm -hmm. When we look at women and men, they are both equally affected, but it seems as if the male patients are slightly higher in number than female patients. Hospitals that are serving areas where the Delta variant is surging have also reported admitting more young and middle-aged COVID-19 patients. But there could be a reason for this, and it could mm -hmm. be that they are less likely to be vaccinated. If you consider the rollout that's been happening and the stages of rollout plans, it started off with, as you know, the healthcare workers, then it went to people yeah. that are up. Uh, the, elder, the aged, et cetera, okay? So it could be because the youth are less likely to be vaccinated. Uh, and of course, things are not always equal because you have different rates of vaccine rollout in high income as opposed to low income countries. When we talk about the vaccine rollout that you just mentioned um, and how it's been rolled out first with the frontline workers and the elders and uh, obviously younger later how is the delta variant impacting the vaccine rollout globally and it sounds like the unvaccinated are, are at greater risk uh what about those that are vaccinated how protected how pr completely protected or not completely protected are they against the delta variant it's a great question so i think for me what is important uh here is to note the power of vaccines to fight infection Okay, as well as the shocking difference for me and for many people around the world between the high and low income countries when it comes to vaccination. 
we've seen that the hoarding of vaccines by wealthy countries, for example, has really left low-income countries more vulnerable and exposed to the Delta variant. We've also seen that most infections in countries uh, with high vaccination rates happen in the unvaccinated. All right, so we've mm-hmm. seen this definitely in the United States, that where Delta, and I use that as an example because it's definitely one of those countries that has more vaccinated people um, than most. And yet what they're seeing is that there are more people that are infected as a result of being unvaccinated as opposed to the vaccinated group. So this shows vaccines are working and yet most middle to income countries are left completely unprotected. Mm. Let me give you an example. I, I sort of came across this earlier. And in Europe, the UK and Portugal, say, are among those facing increasing Delta variant infections. But the high vaccination rates there have definitely dampened the effect or lessened the effect, okay? In the UK, when more than half of the population has been fully vaccinated, the number of deaths among the infected has fallen from one in 50 to one in 750. Wow. Isn't that amazing? But when you Yeah, look that's, at, that's pretty significant. Yeah, it's, it's significant, right? But let's go to Namibia, which is a country in um, Southern Africa, mm-hmm. right? Only 1.2% of its population is vaccinated. It is recording one death for every 22 cases. Oh, wow. Yeah. Its daily rate of 28 COVID deaths per 1 million people is the highest in the world and far above the peak levels that were recorded in the UK and in Italy. So I think we can there see in glaring daylight what the differences are. Then I also want to point out that while no vaccine is 100% effective and doesn't claim to be, the evidence is that the current approved vaccines are preventing people from getting severe illness and dying. It doesn't mean that you won't become infected, okay, after being vaccinated, right? But the thing is that your viral load, that means the viruses that are circulating, certainly in the nasopharynx or in the, in the area where you do your PCR, it's much lower. So that the body is definitely keeping the virus at bay. So, you know, Adele, during the course of the pandemic, we've seen several new variants emerge and the science and the research behind COVID-19 is constantly changing. How can journalists stay up to date with this ever-changing and fast-changing information landscape? <laughs> well, bad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, the question it's, of the century. <laughs> It's the question of the century, and my word, my word, it is the challenge, the challenge that we as journalists face, and it's really tough. So one of the things that I'd like to say is that I think once we as journalists appreciate that science evolves, okay, right. we will become less confused by the changes, especially the changes to public health officials' recommendations, which are incredibly confusing for our audiences. We need to explain this to our audiences. We have to follow the evidence because new research is coming out every day. And I have to say, I'm reminded of Tony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, who is the chief medical advisor to President Biden. 
Now you will know that he made changes to his recommendations about wearing of masks. Mm -hmm. Initially it was don't wear masks, then it was masks. And he was vilified, he was criticized harshly, especially by the grouping in America, I would mm -hmm. say, the grouping that are mainly in favor of not vaccination. But what they're not getting is that this is how science works. Okay. And it's this is not, what he yeah, it's not like fixed. It keeps on changing, right? And it's, it's, there's no absolute truth, too. It's like it keeps on evolving, right? Well, absolutely. You work with the data you have at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, he says it's essential that you evolve your public health opinion and your recommendations based on the data as it evolves, for example. So changes are made because the evidence changes, the data changes. We as journalists, I mean, it's so difficult for us in some ways because you want an answer, yes or no. But that's not how science works. And the sooner we get to understand that, that there is uncertainty in science, the better journalists will, we will become, the better we will become at being able to explain to our audiences, all right? But, but don't, you think, don't you think audiences want to know, like, part of it, the challenge is that audiences want to know the truth right away. They don't want the uncertainty. It's hard to live with uncertainty. Of course it is. Of course it is. But remember, we all live with uncertainty. Exactly. And that is yeah. the essential thing. So we can, as journalists, say uncertainty exists all around us. When your child gets into a taxi or into, trans, uh, into some form of transport on the way to school, look, there is a, a measure of certainty that the child will reach, reach her, their destination. But think about the number of factors that can happen along the way. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So... Uncertainty is what we all live with. It just seems so much less acceptable in science. So what we have to do, okay, is that we have to instill within our audiences an understanding of what scientific research is. What is the scientific method? Why is it that we do clinical trials? Why is it that we look, we observe? And the reason for this is because we are trying to get the best answers. So you'll have some studies that come in that say coffee is good for you. Then you get some studies that come in and say that coffee is bad for you. Yeah. So all of these are looked at and eventually we will get to what we call textbook science, okay? Mm -hmm. So we know now the textbook science, for example, the physics that is in the textbooks, this is the established science. We don't know enough about the variants. We don't know enough even about how exactly. about possibility too, but we are learning along the way. And it is this that we need to express. So how do we do this? We need to read, 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 right. read, read again okay we need to follow the research we need to follow respected journalists and publications we need to ask scientists to explain to tease out the important issues to help us to convey to our audience what kind of information they need to know at any point in time as the science is evolving a good journalist should we invite and talk with different type of scientists okay so different type of scientists we need to be careful there 
okay, because there are some scientists that are not credible in the same mm -hmm. way that there are not journalists that are credible. We need to follow credible sources, all right? So in my book, okay, I would say the WHO, the Center for Disease Control, uh, the Center for Diseases uh, Control in Africa, for example, or wherever okay. that main body of scientists sits within um, in uh, academic institutions, okay? These are the people that we need to go to. And I want to just point out here that don't feel alone. There are places where you can find out how to access these people. And at this point, I would like to suggest that journalists that are feeling that they don't know where to start or how to, how to go about building these uh, sources and resources or understanding science, there is a... Uh, we have some fantastic resources on the Internews website. Mm -hmm. We have a new course on um, called Let's Talk Vaccines around the vaccines, uh, which we, um, how they work, et cetera, uh, around the pandemic. We have a course on Let's Talk COVID-19. And many of these questions can be answered in ways that journalists can understand. There's also a fantastic resource section within the Let's Talk Vaccines um, training module. It's free, and there you will be guided as to what the best sources are. So thank you so much, Adele. And I have, you know, a lot of members of our, of the Internews Health Journalism Network work and live in areas of low science literacy. So how can these journalists make stories about, in this case, the Delta variant more accessible to their audiences? So, you know, Bear, there's no getting away from it. Even if they are, journalists are in uh, areas where there is low science literacy. The point is this, I am not a scientist. My background is uh, I'm a journalist, but to be able to reach my audience, even in the situation where there is low literacy, I have mm -hmm. to know what I'm talking about. I have to understand exactly. the concepts first because there's no ways that I can translate those important concepts into the language that the people on the ground understand unless I understand it. Correct. So to be able to repackage scientific information into the language that people understand, I have to understand it first. There's just no getting away from it. So for me, I think what's also important is to go to those resources that I've uh, suggested, okay? Find that scientific expert, say to a scientific expert, okay? Let's say, for example, mortality, okay? Let's say it's mm -hmm. around um, maternal mortality. You know, if yeah. I say to somebody on the ground in a village and I say, well, you know, that 500 women die every day as a result of, um, you know, as a result of issues around birth and so on and so forth, right? That is nothing. It means nothing. But if I say something that's like an aircraft falling with 500 women on board, plunging onto the earth every day, that's a plane crashing every day with 500 women yeah. on board, it's a visual metaphor. So, so we have to, you know, we have to package it in those kinds of ways. I think what's very important, though, um, is, is we've got to, give the information to our audiences that are going to help them prevent the variant from spreading. Mm -hmm. So those important health messages like social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, sanitizing, staying away from super spreading events, 
And most importantly, or equally important, is that people need to get vaccinated. All right, we still have that outlying problem that there are not enough vaccines in countries that are that are poor countries. We just mm-hmm. don't have enough. But we can still make sure that those audiences are ready for the vaccines when they do arise. We also need to explain that reinfections can happen and people who are vaccinated can also be infected, mm-hmm. but that they will only get a mild infection. So, you know, I think that people want to know the kinds of questions like, what can I do? How can I protect myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things, because those are the things really, it's not about being low science literate. It's just about the questions that everybody right. wants. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's that's for me what's most important. But it, it sounds like the responsibility of journalists, regardless of where they are, especially health journalists, science journalists, is to keep on learning, keep on reading. We've said it before, read, read, read. You have yes. a responsibility, right? Yes. So just in a sort of maybe some extra tips is is that, you know, as journalists, we are led by deadlines, right? This uh, boss says, where is the copy, you know, or the broadcast, we're going in studio in like one minute, right? But here is my advice, because this has served me well in my career. If you are not sure of your facts, you need to wait until you are. It's like that kind of thing of you need to reread through your copy before you send it on in the process of editing in the organization that you are. And I'll tell you why, is that you need also to convince your editor that you are not ready because you're not sure of the facts. Now, why do I say that? Because spreading misinformation costs lives. If you are not sure of what you're saying, if you don't understand what you're saying, then think about those consequences. Journalism is powerful there. When it is responsibly done, it can save lives. So my feeling is that we can be the change. We can demand for more vaccines for lower-income countries. We, We really can impact on the lives of ordinary people. Yeah, absolutely. And so spread you said it, spreading misinformation costs lives. And that's really sums it up. Adele, I want to thank you so much for your time today with us. And I know this interview will be super helpful for our journalists in the network. And um, we hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.